Welcome to this joint event, Counter Composition, Conversations on Ethics, um, with the LSE Arts and the Forum for Economic Philosophy. Uh, my name is David Edmonds. I'm a part-time journalist and a part-time academic, and as a hobby, I interview philosophers for something called Philosophy Bites. And I'm delighted to be here to, uh, for this event with a full-time academic, Alex for Hoover, who's based here at the LSE, and Stephen Pike, who is a um, photographer at uh, with the New Yorker, and um, I'm very jealous of both of them. Uh, most people's heroes, if you ask them, they'll they'll have a political hero like Nelson Mandela or sports hero like Muhammad Ali. All my heroes are academic figures, and in particular, philosophers. And Alex has um, written this marvelous book of collected uh, interviews uh, with some of the great uh, moral philosophers. And Stephen Pike has collected over the years an extraordinary rich uh, archive photographing um, philosophers here uh, and in the US mainly. Uh, so we're going to begin with Alex, who's going to speak for about 25 minutes, and then Stephen will talk, and then we'll open it up for questions. So um, without further ado, Alex, over to you. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming this evening. Um, I recalled tonight counter composition uh, in kind of uh, honor of uh, one of my favorite paintings by Theo von Duisburg. It turns out the Tate now has an uh, exhibit on it. And his uh, great insight was that rather than having horizontal and vertical lines intersecting, if you put them at an angle with each other, you created a great tension in the picture, he said, which um, did more to like, capture the image and uh, make you contemplate the play of shapes, etc. So I thought that was a good theme for uh, this evening and in a sense for a discussion of the book because the book is in two senses a counter-composition. One is uh, it's a set of dialogues between myself asking questions of leading uh, moral philosophers and some scientists working in areas like moral psychology or the origin of our moral judgments. And then in addition, I contacted Steve, knowing of his uh, portraits of philosophers, to have the portraits there with the uh, interviews. And that is a second element of the counter-composition, where you place what? You place the picture of the person next to their a debate of their philosophical ideas. And so tonight, what we'd like to do, or where I'll start, and then Steve will carry on to some extent, is I'll introduce the book and its project in terms of three kind of basic questions that I think get us into, got me and many of the people I interviewed, into moral philosophy. But then reflect a bit more on what the uses of the dialogue form in answering these questions. Why? Uh, should you read a book of dialogues or engage in a dialogue with philosopher, why not just pick up their text and read it? What is added or maybe what is taken away? In addition, then I want to end with the question to uh, Steve, beyond questions of his technique, why he chooses to make uh, portraits the way he does, what is added once you've read the book by having the picture of the person there? If we're interested in philosophers, why aren't we just interested in the text and their ideas what do we care besides the aesthetic value of having one of Steve's portraits there? Okay. 
But let's start first with the questions that I think get us into uh, moral philosophy. Here's the first question. I think all of us have everyday moral judgments about particular situations, we might call them cases, and these kind of common first judgments, if I present you with a case like I will in a moment, I'll simply be calling them intuitions. It's not meant to be anything mysterious. You're not grasping something through some special faculty. It's simply your first judgment about a case without applying consciously, at least, any general philosophical principle. And we have intuitive judgments about all kinds of things. In fact, I'll give you a few judgments, intuitive judgments about some other things that are morals also in a minute. And I think it's a good question to ask ourselves, can we trust them? Can we trust our first responses, which can often be quite strong in, in they might be accompanied by feelings of repugnance or guilt or the thought that this would be admirable to do. So it's not simply a kind of cool and calm judgment, but often a, a strong, accompanied by strong emotions that might be hard to shake off. Can we trust them? Um, so let me just give you one. There's many I could choose. Uh, I've chosen one because all of you are affected by its answer. So let me explain this case. The National Health Service has a body called NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which determines in Britain how the money, very substantial sum of money, devoted in the National Health Service is allocated, to which types of treatments it is allocated. Now they use a scale, which I won't go too far into, uh, of health-related well-being, which conveniently ranges from zero, a death, to one, perfect health, and various conditions are placed along this scale, and the scale is of the nature that equal improvements on the scale are equally valuable. So if I'd given you a money scale, and this was a zero income per month, and this was a million pounds, then moving from zero to 100,000 pounds a month would be very different in its impact on your well-being than moving from 900,000 to a million to spend a month. You might think the latter would do almost nothing for you, whereas the former would do a great deal for you. That's not what this scale is like. This scale is meant to be that every improvement along the scale is equally valuable. That's what makes it a well-being scale. Okay, so much by way of introduction. Now suppose you're an NHS manager and you're faced with the following choice. Bob is completely disabled. This gives him a score of 0.15. Complete disability. I didn't make these up, by the way. These are um, numbers from surveys that are used by the NHS. <coughs> He's permanently bedridden. You can treat Bob and move him to the condition known as very severe impairment, where he will be somewhat less bedridden. He will be able to sit up with the help of others and be moved around in a wheelchair for part of the day. That's it. That, you'll be pleased to learn, gives you a score at the NHS of 0 0.30. Anne, on the other hand, has only a slight impairment, still significant. She is, finds it very difficult to walk more than one kilometer in a day. And the choice facing you is this. Do you finance the treatment for Bob, which moves him from here to here? 
or from Anne, which would completely cure her. And now notice that this improvement is just slightly larger. It does her slightly more good to be cured of a slight impairment than it does good to Bob to move him from completely disabled to very severe impairment. Take a moment, and if there's only one of these two treatments that you, within your budget, could accommodate, which would you choose? Well, if we had nice on a hotline here, we had a phone a friend moment in this talk, and I called the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, the answer would be Anne. You said that. Great. So you're, you are very pleased by the way health services run in the country, at least systems are allocated, because the basic, roughly, the basic principle is do the most good. Generate the greatest amount of health-related well-being. For those of you who are familiar with this, this is appropriate for a country uh, of Bentham and Mill because this is a roughly a utilitarian rule. Maximize the sum total of health-related well-being. However, I suppose, has anyone here said I would go for Bob? Well, this is predictable. <laughs> right, well, quite a few, myself included. Let's see here as well. Oh, uh, here as well. There you go. Now, we do so even if I think we accept that this is a sm somewhat smaller improvement simply because the person here is less well off. But that's our kind of first judgment. I gave you two minutes to think about it. <coughs> this sense might stay with you powerfully if you were, if you became an NHS allocation manager. Can you trust it? What could be said on its behalf? Many leading thinkers, utilitarians, think it's wrong, as does NICE. Here's another question. You can save either Chad from death. Suppose he has acute appendicitis. Chad will go on to lead a full life if you cure him. Or you can use the same resources to treat N, some unknown number of people, who are in this condition, mild to moderate chronic pain that prevents no activities. Again, I did not make these scores or descriptions up. This is what's used at the National Health Service. The question is, how many people would this have to be to make you say, it's a body even, I'm indifferent, between this saving this question mark number of people and one person from imminent death. Take a moment to think about it. Your time's up, we're dealing with intuitions here. Mm -hmm. right. If I phoned nice, what would the answer be? 20, because 20 times 0 0.05 equals one. Again, many, some people in surveys say, in fact, something as extreme as no amount of such a small, though still significant, I mean, to be in continuously mild to moderate pain is no picnic, but otherwise healthy. Um, no amount of the smaller, curing the smaller ailment cannot weigh one person's imminent death. Again, that's a strongly held intuition by some. Where does it come from? Can it be justified? Some people disagree with you. 
That's all I want to leave you with. That's one of the questions I think that drives us into ethics. We have responses to cases like this. What can be said for or against them? Can we trust them? Well, here, just to give you a contrast, two examples of everyday intuitive judgments that are not moral. Here's someone who studied them and whom I interviewed from book, Daniel Kahneman. This one he asked, a bat and a ball cost $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? You have three seconds to answer. Three, two, one. What's the first thing that pops into your mind? I heard five cents. That's the right answer. You'll be pleased to know that when he asked this of Princeton and Stanford undergraduates, the answer was 10 cents. Why? The quick answer, because it's roughly in the right area and, you know, it's in the area of a dollar difference. It comes to mind quickly, apparently not in this sophisticated audience, but <laughs> at these lesser universities in the United States, which fortunately you are not being educated at. That's an, that's an example of a non-trustworthy intuition, at least among many people. Here's one which is very trustworthy. You wake me up, I've been sleeping. Actually, Fumiana was asking me this question just before. And I blurt out, I'm Dutch originally, it's now long ago that I and the Dutch drunk have. You immediately think this is ungrammatical. This is the way it would be said in Dutch literal translation. You immediately know it's ungrammatical. That is, again, an intuitive judgment of grammaticality, which is, in fact, extremely reliable. So our lives are filled with judgments that are, so, that are, so to speak, quick. Some are reliable, some are unreliable. And this is just by way of the questions that got me into the book. One thing is the principles that determine our intuitive judgments are not always transparent to us. <coughs> Especially if I ask you then to spell out the rules of grammar according to which my, the sentence I blurted out is wrong, many of you would struggle far more of you than those who immediately got it right, that it was not grammatical. The other lesson, as I said, intuitions are sometimes but not always reliable, and so it makes sense to want to find out what determines them in order to evaluate their reliability. Okay, that was the first question. Our everyday judgments, can we trust them? Where do they come from? The second question, are moral judgments objective? What do I mean by that? Well, here's a first attempt at explaining what objectivity means. That there's the right and wrong answers to moral questions, and that if someone doesn't share our judgments, we think that they are wrong, or we are wrong, or maybe both of us are wrong. That there are right and wrong answers to moral questions, and that therefore, if there's disagreement, at least one of the two parties must be mistaken. And in other areas of inquiry, science, logic, mathematics, objectivity, and you would therefore also think in ethics, requires impersonal, it's not purely subjective standards, for good judgment, so also morality. And if we were trying to think of them, we'd say, well, empathy, impartiality, careful consideration of <coughs> principles and particular cases, etc. So forms of careful deliberation, impartial deliberation, being able to place yourself really in the situation of the people affected, and so on. 
And it seems that by analogy to what we do in logic or mathematics or in science, or even in everyday questions like uh, grading exam papers, if you think someone's a good judge, you should lend their view some weight. If I'm grading and I give someone a distinction, and one of my colleagues, whom I think is also a good judge, gives them uh, a 2-1, then it makes me think again about whether I really was right to give this guy uh, a distinction, and perhaps the truth is somewhere in between, as it often does lie. So usually, we have impartial standards and we give weight to judges who we think meet those standards. But especially in ethics, we find that people who are apparently good judges, like the people I interviewed for the book, see basic issues, fundamental issues, very differently, even after a process of careful inquiries. Just to give you an example, in the cases I mentioned at the start, Singer, who's a utilitarian, says, look, in the cases I just described, only the sum total of well-being is relevant. Total well-being is all that matters, and we should maximize the total. So, in my first case, we should give Anne, who is a better off person, who we could give a slightly greater benefit, we should give her the benefit, so he agrees with nice. And we should treat the chronic pain, rather than the case of the person who's about to die, for any number of people whom we can treat is larger than 20. But, by contrast, Francis Kahn, another one I've interviewed, says, the moral perspective involves taking up the perspective of each person, impartially, but not summing up their well-being into one giant total, but rather say, taking it person by person. What could Bob say to Anne, or Anne say to Bob, taking into account their full perspective, including how well off they are as compared to somebody else? So, the moral perspective, according to Francis Kahn, is individualized, taking each person one by one, and she says, it follows from that that you should give the person who's less well off the somewhat smaller benefit, and you should prevent the death of the one rather than the chronic pain of the many, no matter how many people are in chronic pain. So this isn't just any more contrasting intuitions like we saw here in the audience. These are people who have thought as well as they can about these issues and represent, the, in some sense, the uh, if you were to draw up standards of good moral judges that didn't yet refer to what they came up with, but rather how they went about thinking through it, are about as good as they get. So what do we, what do, we do when we're confronted with such differing points of view? Well, this is one of the questions that got Alastair McIntyre, another one of the philosophers I interviewed, into moral philosophy. He said, how is it possible that we have two moral views of this kind? He's referring to a kind of utilitarian and a non-utilitarian view, each of which provides a rational justification for its judgments, but neither of which appears to be able to come to terms with each other. What does this mean for our apparent commitment to moral objectivity? So here are three possible responses. One is you can do what I do when I disagree with my colleague, whom I also think is a good judge, about grading a paper. You're, you think, well, the fact that this other good judge thinks this pushes me in the direction of thinking maybe I was partly wrong, 
he was partly wrong. We agree somewhere in the middle on this. Maybe there's something to be said for the utilitarian view because someone who's thought it through so carefully um, favors it. Often in ethics, however, we find the view that we're disagreeing with simply abhorrent, or not. at least sometimes this happens, and we refuse to move anywhere in that direction because we cannot accept the conclusion. Well, suppose that we are driven by this abhorrence not to take option one. Then what happens? Well, we can say the person who holds the opposing view is a bad judge because they made the judgment that they did. Right? So we make it a criterion for good judgment, not just that they're impartial, empathetic, have considered everything carefully, have thought very deeply about the matter, but also what they come up with. Anyone who arrives at Peter Singer's judgments just is a bad judge, therefore Peter Singer is a bad judge, therefore I don't have to pay any attention to him. That would be one possible approach, and that was way too easy. Right? That seems, firstly, it's, it's superficial, it's glib, it's easy, and also it means you immediately give up on dialogue with the person because you've simply said to someone, I'm not going to listen to you because of the answers, type of answers you come up with. Well, then there's a third option if you don't want to take either of these. You can simply give up on your belief in objectivity. You can say, moral judgments are not objective in the way other judgments are, and therefore there's nothing really to find right or wrong here in an objective sense. I'm not claiming these are the only three options, but those are the first three that I think anyone who comes to questions of moral disagreement goes through, and the question I went into the book with, are these really the only three options, and if so, which one should we choose? Third question, why be moral? This is, I think, even more straightforward than the others. So if I tell you that something is the right thing to do, um, or that something else is the wrong thing to do, that would seem to give you very important, maybe even decisive reason not to do the wrong thing. So it would seem to give us reasons of the greatest importance. But what is what types of reasons are they? Why should we be why should they speak to us so strongly <coughs> and commandingly when we may have very other plans than doing the right thing? So just to give an example, suppose you are this NHS hospital manager and you decided that Bob because he's less well-off, should be the one who gets priority. Now, this has been withheld from you, this following information, but it turns out that Anne is your child. You'd reached the moral conclusion, we should help the less well-off person. Now you learn that the person whom you decided should not be treated is someone you care about deeply. Your position commits you to impartiality. Can't have NHS managers always favoring the people who are close to them. Why should you listen to this moral command? What reason at all do you have to give that priority over a very important benefit to someone you care about deeply? Okay, so those are the three questions I took into the book. Why, if you're interested in these questions, what's added by a dialogue form to all the monological texts that are out there? And then, of course, we have the famous um, founding father of philosophy, Plato, Socrates of modern Western philosophy, wrote in dialogue form. So I thought, 
In answering this question, we should probably have a look at what Plato says about this. So here's what is said in the Phaedrus when they discuss different forms of doing philosophy. Socrates says, writing shares a strange feature with painting. The offsprings of painting stand there as if they are alive, but if anyone asks them anything, they remain most solemnly silent. The same is true of written words. Moreover, when writing is attacked, it always needs its father's support. Alone, it cannot defend itself. So basically, here's a portrait of Socrates. You come to it, what does it say? Nothing. Texts are like that. Texts don't say anything back to you. They don't challenge you. They don't engage you. So here's a sparkling bit of dialogue. Phaedrus says, you are absolutely right, Socrates. Socrates says, can we discern another kind of discourse by nature better and more capable? And Phaedrus says, you mean the living, breathing discourse of the man who knows? Socrates, absolutely right. Okay, so it's a real demonstration of the best that dialogue has to offer. So here's a bit more systematically what Socrates appears to be saying there. If you have monologic writing, just an author telling you their views on the topic, what could we say as compared to live dialogue? Well, one is that it allows the author who's in control to pass over difficulties, to focus on the attractive bits of his or her thought. Second is, it can't pick up on misrepresentations or emotional resistance in the audience, and it can't respond to objections that the author didn't foresee. Another thing, this is very common in platonic dialogues, some everyman gets taken and softened up because Socrates says, so uh, you know what courage is about, right? You're a courageous guy, so tell me what courage is. Yeah, I know it, etc. And he starts questioning him at the end of the dialogue or halfway through the dialogue. The guy breaks down and says, I really have no idea what courage is. Why is that done? It's to prepare the person in question for the receipt of, at least if there is a philosophical knowledge to receive, to prepare them to soften them up for the receipt of true philosophical knowledge, or at least to make them aware of what they don't know. And because the audience isn't engaged in this way, it becomes indolent and passive. That was the claim. Now, just to give you an example that this uh, softening up stuff is, doesn't just happen in platonic dialogues, it happened to me uh, several times. So I went to interview Philippa Foote, and I thought, you know, I admire her work hugely, but she has this really strange idea, I thought at the time, of asking the question why be moral is just a mistake. Because being moral is being rational. And I thought, this is ridiculous. What a strange thing to say. You know, I come from the LSE, you know, I trained originally as an economist. I think rationality is the maximal pursuit of your consistent set of desires. End of story. Morality may be in that or not in those desires, nothing more to rationality. So I was pressing her on this, and then she finally did the Oxford Jiu Jitsu, which is said, uh, started questioning me. <laughs> this is a fragment, it gets much worse than I say, I spared you the bloody bits. She says, oh yes, I should add, so uh, I used to be a smoker, and I was very nervous before meeting this grand dame of uh, philosophy, so she caught, I was there early, and I was smoking cigarettes in her garden. And she must have seen me from her window. I was also very elegantly dressed because I thought, you know, I have to look my part. So 
she says to me halfway after my criticism, I wonder what you would say about a young person who doesn't care about the chance of getting lung cancer due to smoking in 20 years' time. Do you call this, contrary to practical rationality, after an initial pause, I said it would depend on what this person's attitudes towards the future are. I'm still going for the consistent pursuit of your desires thing. What if this young person cares about being well-dressed at 40, <laughs> but not about his health at 40? Then I made the mistake. I said, although he's being consistent, I might want to say that he's not recognizing something he should recognize. Ah, and where do you get that should from? I had no way of appealing to a should if this person didn't desire it, but nonetheless, I thought there was something problematic. So I became somewhat less skeptical of her view. But of course, writing has its advantages. You know, Socrates is all about the, the, the dialogue and not the written word, but you know, we only know about what Socrates was saying because someone wrote it down, and you have more time to think about it. In dialogue, you very often get wrong-footed. Um, you don't have the time to come up with the best answer. And I think this is essentially why Plato wrote dialogue, to give a hybrid of the two types of advantages. So in what way could dialogue be advantageous? Well, remember, the first thing was that the author can, of the ideas can tiptoe around difficult ideas. Well, if someone's there questioning them, they don't get to tiptoe around it. Secondly, if the reader's concerns are voiced in the dialogue, then the text isn't silent in reply. It speaks. And as we just saw, the everyman who's doing the questioning can in turn be questioned, like Socrates always does, to expose the problems in common views uh, that underlie the questions. And finally, so Socrates says, when you're reading a text or when you're listening to a speech, monologic, it's boring. You don't get engaged. Um, but when you're looking at a intellectual combat, so to speak, between two, you cannot help but take sides. I mean, if two uh, you know, bugs are racing on the pavement, me and my brother would already get engaged, like which one is going to win, etc. How much more even if there's a a dialogue between two people going on, who's right, who's wrong, the fact that I got um, thrown off the mat by Philippa Foote uh, is at the very least amusing, but also gets you thinking, as a reader I imagine, which side is right. Okay, um, I'll wrap up in a moment, uh, a, a few minutes, but now just to give you an example that I wasn't always me who was <laughs> completely defeated, here's a case of Peter Singer, a fragment um, and myself in exchange, he has a view that what harms or benefits a being depends entirely on that being's capacities at that time. So a newborn infant, given that it has no consciousness of itself through time, only has the capacity for pleasure and pain, is in that sense exactly like uh, a non-rational animal like perhaps a goldfish or a chicken <coughs> which also has no sense of itself as persisting through time and only is exposed to the harms or benefits of instantaneous pain or pleasure. So it would follow that there's nothing wrong towards the infant of killing it painlessly. Um, 
Here's then the exchange about this. I said, well, suppose then, on your view, that we can say either a newborn orphan, so no one else cares about the child, we're supposed to imagine, or two dogs from a painful death in a fire. You're committed to saying that we should save the two dogs since this prevents more suffering. And here's the first move that anyone will make if they're writing the book themselves. You tiptoe around the problem. We can't isolate the case in this way. Other people might care for the orphan. I think this is completely besides the point, right? Even if no one else cares about it, there's something going on in the case which seems very strange, that you just would save the dog. But leaving aside other people's feelings, pause, just like I paused when Philippa Foote had me, leaving aside other people's feelings, maybe I would conclude that we should save the dogs. But I think we would find it difficult and a general recommendation that we should do something that cuts against these feelings. I don't know that I want to do that. I think one of the advantages of the dialogue, these types of uncertainties don't show up in a text. In the end, he might be happy to endorse, to bite the bullet here, so to speak, because Peter Singer thinks we shouldn't trust our intuitive emotional responses anyway. But nonetheless, what's the advantage of the dialogue is that it brings out the depth of the problem in this particular view, even in the person who holds the view. And I think this is where what I'd like to end on, and which moves nicely into Steve's part of this evening. That is, Plato spends a lot of time not just on the philosophical positions, but at least in his better dialogues, on the type of person who's engaged in philosophy. So he ha often has the same philosophical position, first defended by someone who not really has the right attitudes of a philosopher, like Trasimachus in the first book of the Republic. Trasimachus, this for some verbal jujitsu, gets thrown off the mat by Socrates. But then the very same questions that Socrates didn't really answer are brought up by a proper philosopher, someone with the right virtues, namely Plato's half-brother, Glaucon. And the debate gets renewed. And I think what Plato wants to say there is philosophy is about more than just the back and forth of argument. It involves certain virtues. And I want to just highlight three of them in closing. So here's the first virtue of tenacity. Never give up. So this is what Philippa Foots describes her philosophical education at the hands of the not very gentle Elizabeth Anscombe. In Anscombe's seminars, I opposed nearly everything she said. Naturally, I was regularly defeated. But I would be there, objecting away, the next week. It was like in those children's comics where a steamroller runs over a character who becomes flattened, an outline on the ground, though the character is there in the next episode, unscathed. I was like one of those characters. Here's another very good philosophical motive, suspicion. <coughs> so here's Arm Harrow, I didn't interview, but it is a photograph by Steve in his first collection of philosophers. So Bernard Williams, who's the master of suspicion in uh, recent moral and political philosophy. Um, I believe this is an account, as he, as I remember, he told me of uh, a supervision with uh, Arm Hare. Hare was a utilitarian. And Williams was merciless in his criticism of utilitarianism. And he finally said, you tear everything down, but what do you put in its place? To which Williams said, in that place, nothing. <laughs> that is not a place that anything should be. <laughs> now, beyond the fact that this is amusing, 
very witty, and I, I, I would be very unhappy handing my students this to me during supervision. Um, it shows something about suspicion, namely, don't necessarily accept the terms of the debate as it's put. Hare is saying there must be a theory such as utilitarianism that gives us the supreme principle of morality that tells us what to do, what's right and wrong in various situations. And Williams dares say, why should there be such a theory? I see no reason where there should be such a theory. In fact, there shouldn't be such a theory at all. <coughs> Finally, here's an interesting motive, love. So Nietzsche says, all great problems demand great love. And then he says, like you know, any woman worth having, they won't let themselves be held by you know, indifferent, indolent thinkers. You really have to want it and fight for it with all your heart and soul. And I found this very often repeated in the interviews and very beautifully at one point by Frances Cam, who, devote, who, who um, dedicates one of her books to the love of morality, not to a person, but to the love of morality. And I asked her, why did you do so? She said, as I was writing this book, going over it again and again, you become completely detached from other people. At certain points, I had to sit in my bedroom, the most secure place I could find, with a big bag of potato chips and a big bag of popcorn and try to encompass the whole thing in my mind to see whether it would fit together. I was trying to think as deeply as I possibly could and I just felt there wasn't anything else. It was like a new world I was having insight into and I dedicated my book to it because I felt like I'd been granted admission into this new world. This is the type of love I think that Nietzsche is speaking about and when I sent this quote to a friend of mine, he said, Man, that is scary. <laughs> is that what is required? Is that what you have to do? Is this how dedicated you have to be? And I think to some extent the answer is maybe yes, indeed, it is. Now, this brings us to Steve. What's the point then of having this portrait of Francis there? And I thought, I was recently reading... Um, uh, the book uh, Camera Lucida where the it's uh, Bart right the, uh, uh, the author says about a portrait of his mother that he saw her character completely captured in it a certain type of sweetness a certain type of attitude and I have that with this picture that's to say the dialogue is meant to reveal not just the ideas but also the type of person who has these ideas and the type of character that's required to have them and um, well, Francis here has a kind of monastic. Uh, you know, a friend said to me, "She looks like a nun." Is she a nun? <laughs> um, but the way that she isolates herself in service of the pursuit of what she regards as a search for the deep structure of morality and its meaning, I think is brought out to me. It speaks to me from this uh, portrait, and I find that is also true with several of the other portraits. Um, here, for example, is Ken Binmore, who I haven't mentioned. He's looking extremely skeptical here, which is precisely true of the way, and slightly combative, not very inviting. Um, precisely the atmosphere displayed in his books and in the dialogue. This is Ken Binmore, uh, an economist and philosopher, now also here at uh, LSE. And I'll leave you with Bernard Williams, the slightly raised eyebrow, the quizzical... Uh, and somewhat challenging 
stare, I think, goes perfectly with much of his character, and a half light and half shadow, uh, because he thinks that we have to focus as well in much of his work on the dark sides of human nature. So I thought, in those respects, these portraits do what Bart's portrait of his mother did for him, which is they emphasize something which is already pre present in the dialogue, um, which is trying to capture some part of the essence of the person's character. But uh, how you do it, Steve, is uh, the next bit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank, thank you first, everybody, for coming. Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry, yeah. Steve's presentation. You'll have to... Uh, I've just got up a long-haul flight, so if I start to uh, fade or, or uh, start to dream it, you have to, you have to shout. What I, what I wanted to do was, we kind of come to it, I thought that was kind of, it's interesting, this, um, this question. And it's kind of like at the end, what I should do first is speak about the project. But one thing that in, in immediately uh, was interesting is that you're talking about, with the exception, you, did you meet Williams? Yeah. Okay, so you, you, were, you were talking there about portraits, with, uh, portraits of people that, you, that you'd met. And that you don't necessarily, it's not like, um, you know, your mother, you look at a portrait of your mother and you have a different, you have a completely different sense of who that person is. You have very, it's very, it's, and it's very complicated. There's many levels of it. And it's also probably pretty complicated. But the... My um, mother is extremely complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing is, if you look at the first book of the first volume of Philosophers, which is, which has, um, uh, I think, 74 portraits in it. Now, a lot, a majority of those you wouldn't. And it'd be interesting to go through them and to see what some of them you won't. Some of them are people that you wouldn't have read. Most of them are people that I've not read because I don't. I'm not a philosopher. I should say that at the very beginning. I'm not a philosopher or an academic. I'm a photographer. So um, let's come back to to that at the end. But um, what I should do is I should explain how this came about. First and first and foremost, how this project came about, and which button do I press? <laughs> I've not been guided. Press this one, I think. Okay, good, good. So I'll start with this. Um, how many have we got here? 36. Okay, so there's 36. There's 36 portraits of philosophers from, um, from the first series here, which I started in 1988 with a portrait of, um, of Sir AJF. And I was asked, it, it, a lot of my work is, is, is uh, self commissioned, and I, I, they're, they're collections ongoing collections of portraits of people and there. I photographed astronauts, I photographed film directors and artists and a lot of writers. And philosophers has been like a great love for me. And it started by meeting in 88, um, Freddie Air. And, um, and thinking beforehand, like being, thinking like, what, what on earth am I gonna have in common with Freddie Air? What on earth are we gonna be able to, be able to talk about? Um, and, and it was supposed to have been, a, he was very ill at the time, it was supposed to have been a 10 minute sitting in Regent's Park and it went on to like four hours and we spoke about all sorts of different things. It was, I mean, he's, he was, it was amazing. I thought at the end of the session what I'd like to do would be to photograph more philosophers. I'd like to meet more philosophers and so I asked him and he said to me, well, he went into this little, he had like a diary, like a little notebook, a dress book, it was about that size and it was completely worn and he went into it and he pulled out these three phone numbers and one of them was Isaiah Berlin's the other one was Michael Dummett, and the other one was uh, Peter Strawson. And he said, I suggest you go and speak to these three, 
these three people and ask them who they think you should photograph. So I rang them up next day and photographed them within, a, within about 10 days. I went and met them in Oxford and photographed them and um, actually Berlin in London. And, um, and out of a possible, I asked them if they could give me, first of all, if they could give me 10 names of people that have had a, an impact upon their life within philosophy. But they've got to be alive. Because obviously there's no use to me if they So, um, and I had a possible 30 names. I think, I seem to remember they came up with 25. So I realized very early on that um, if I was going to start to, you know, if I was going to really give this, this project some time and, and, um, and the, you know, the time it deserved, then it's, it's going to take a while. And this was 88. Now it's, now it's unbelievably 2010. I still can't write it down. I'm still writing 1994 <laughs> <laughs> for some reason. Um, so, but it's a long, you know, this has been like a series that I've photographed. I've photographed 74 for the first series, and now um, I'm just about to, the OUP are about to publish the next, um, the next book later in the year, and there'll be just over 100 philosophers of a new generation, which will be in this. So <laughs> what happens is I, through kind of, what well, seems to me logical that, I can't, choose, I can't choose the philosophers and, and uh, I'm not an academic or a philosopher and so they have to choose themselves. So um, that's how I do it. I ask them for ten and whenever a name comes up three times then I approach the person. Um, so that's one question I ask them. Um, the sessions usually last an hour. Um, the other question I ask them is if they can write down and I think you've all got some 50 words in front of you. Um, I wanted you to see them because it's a really important part of the project that the uh, and a part of the continuation of the book um, that the philosophers write down in some kind of way um, a praise of the 50-word <laughs> 50 um, summary um, statement of why it is that they've been involved in philosophy for their life. It's, I mean, I'm really looking for something that comes from the heart, not you know, that I was at so-and-so in this place and that place. So, um, and everybody, everybody, almost everybody, just a few people have, have not taken part in the project, and, and, but almost everybody has put this down. So that's become kind of interesting archive in its own right. I kind of thought it was like matchbook, matchbook philosophy, or something that you get inside, um, you know, those Chinese crackers that you pull out. <laughs> I kind of like that. I think it's the whole, the whole idea of this series, the photograph of this series, was to bring it to a wider audience because people... <laughs> I was completely blown away by air and I thought that other people should have the opportunity to, to meet in some way. This is a way that I could do it to, to kind of expose and show what philosophers actually look like, not just um, a physical representation, but um, a representation of something between the, of the meeting, which is what a portrait is, of the meeting between the sitter and the photographer. So that's, that's what I do. I photograph them about an hour. I photograph them always with natural light. Um, the reason for that is that um, because I never know where I'm going to be. So all of the portraits that I've shot, uh, apart from one, I think Todorov was were, were shot by uh, natural light, by windows usually, and with a neutral black background. And the reason I use a neutral black background is because it's consistent, uh, black or white background. It's black on one side and white on the other because it's consistent. And um, I, I want to take the environments out because the environments to a large degree I'm not interested in I think they're kind of a lot of the time they're, you know, they're irrelevant so um, and I, can, I really concentrate on the face and what life has done to this face so let me start let me show you some um, 
I've forgotten which which one is it. Is this that? is Facebook. <laughs> right. Okay. So um, what I've done here is I put um, I put some pictures together, and I'll read this. Um, I put some, some pictures together as doubles. I start with um, the double portrait, which is um, Anscombe, Elizabeth Anscombe and Peter Geach. Um, and so when I photographed um, them together, they were, the f they were really considered, this was in 1990, I think, in Cambridge, and they were really considered the first, um, the first couple of, of English philosophy. Um, both, of course, were students of Wittgenstein. This is photographed at home in their back garden. So I've coupled here. This is kind. Of, I've shown these photographs over a period of time. I mean, since since the 90s, the first book was published, and and so it kind of it kind of became interesting for me to put people together. Because even though I'm not a, I'm not a philosopher, I've become a kind of like sociologist of philosophy. So I know. Even though I've not read a lot of what these people have, have, have written, I know why it is that certain philosophers are, are, are paired with others, whether they were tutor and student, or they held similar chair or the same chairs in some instance. So I put Freddie Eyre and Isaiah Berlin together because they were well, first and foremost they were lifelong friends, and they represented Oxford philosophy at that t at this time, which was. Um, 88 and 90, I no, 88, these were both photographed in. Um, Eyre had the Wickham chair in Berlin, uh, was the, how do you pronounce this, the Cicelli. Yeah. Yeah. Cicelli, professor at Oxford. So that's Eyre in Berlin. I put Murdoch and, and, um, and Philip of Foot together um, for, for a number of reasons. First, firstly, um, they're both Oxford philosophers and both eminent ethicists, that, but they were great friends. And um, in actual fact, when I photographed Philippa Fort, she's got, she's got a lot of good one-liners, uh, Philippa Fort. And um, she said that they, they shared digs together in London during the war, uh, down on the embankment. And she said that they were more scared of, um, of the doodlebugs than they were of <laughs> the American troops. Um, I put... Michael Dummett and Dorothy Edgington together um, with the Wickham and Waynefleet chairs respectively. Dorothy Edgington was the first female chair in philosophy in Oxford. The Dummett picture was very, very early on. The portrait of Dorothy, I think, is maybe about seven or eight years ago. The pictures are kind of, the pictures, even though they're photographed very, very close, um, I work, work in this, this very tight space within the, with, uh, just on the face really and, but the pictures seem to me to be changing the, the later series seems to be they're kind of gentler I think it's interesting judge for yourself when the book's published ah this is this is kind of, this is Oxford today um, Oxford philosophy today, Williamson uh, Timothy Williamson is the current holder of the Wickham chair and uh, um, Hawthorne is the holder of the Wainfleet chair these are both recent portraits. So um, Quine and uh, Lewis. Lewis was a student of Quine. I'm told Lewis initiated with Kripke the metaphysical turn in philosophy. Is that right? 
say so. It's that's what I'm told. Yeah. Somebody said there's a good link. I've got Kit Fine and Ted Sider, uh, two eminent metaphysicians working today, both at uh, NYU. I live in I live in New York, and and um, uh, when I photographed the first series, I was living in London, so I was backwards and forwards between Cambridge and well, some of the time in London, of course, but uh, Cambridge and uh, Cambridge and Oxford. But it's interesting that now that a lot of the uh, a lot of the portraits that I'm photographing are, are, are based in New York. Um, Harvard's not, doesn't seem to, I mean, I don't choose the philosophers, but Harvard doesn't seem to be as strong as it was in 1990. And um, NYU and Rutgers um, certainly have, have got a really powerful philosophy team at the moment. At least they're the names that keep on coming up and up and up. This is John Rawls and um, Tim Scanlon. Two eminent meta, uh, two of the great Harvard ethicists. Uh, Ray Langton and Francis Cam, uh, two more distinguished Cambridge ethicists. Bob Stolnecker and Jason Stanley, uh, two philosophers of language, teacher and student. This is Delia Graff um, and uh, Antonia Pyre, who were both at Princeton. Hmm. So I put this together. This, this is a suggestion of a friend of mine. He thought it was kind of interesting that um, Noam Chomsky and Jürgen Habermas are two figures whose, whose philosophical work is very different, but both are moral forces within, the, both are moral forces in public debate in their respective countries. Ned Block and David Chalmers, two of the major figures today in the study of consciousness. And finally here, I put Derrida and Baudrillard together. Um, these are from the first series. I wanted to include the French philosophers as they're such a different tradition um, to the rest of the philosophers I've shown here tonight. Uh, let me see if I have anything after that. No, I don't. So, how do I get back? <laughs> Got it. Okay. Okay, figured it. So, um, let's put these together. So, I've explained. Um, I've explained how how I um, you know how I go about finding people and the fifty the fifty words you have examples of. There was something that I wanted to read because when you, you mentioned earlier, earlier on, just as I arrived, about this Socrates comment, and there's something that I had here which I'd written, and there's two things that I had that I written, and one of them was a statement that I wrote for a book um, late late last year. So let me just read this: the human face signals our emotions, suggests our cultural background. It is the naked part that we present to the world. Our faces speak realms about our identity. Our faces anchor us. Our faces anchor us to our histories, our stories, and the stories of our ancestors. Our faces change with time, and our faces absorb the passage of time. We tell our stories through our face, through our faces, how we present ourselves, 
how we use the personal canvas to convey not only our, our emotions, but also histories and identities. So what actually goes on when I'm photographing somebody? Um, in some ways, you're trying to uncover, you're trying to find something of what, at the very best, what you're hoping for. You have an hour with somebody, and I photograph for maybe like 10 or 15 minutes, and it's a very intense period, and we're very close, and you're in a space, um, in a space this close with somebody that you, a lot of the time, you've not met before, and a lot of the time, the only time, a lot of the time, this, the only time that you let people into that side, that kind of space, that close, intimate space, is with your loved ones. So it's a very charged atmosphere. Um, and a lot of the time, a lot of the people that I photograph are used to being photographed, they're used to being in the public eye. Um, but the philosophers were not. So in, in lots of ways, I think that the, the, the most that you, what you, what you get is you get, you have a, there's a relationship that goes backwards and forwards between the two of you for an hour. Um, including, of course, talking to them and everything, and they get to know you. They, maybe they know you through your work. That, that's ha that happens more and more. But that what happens is there's, there's some way, in some way, what you're trying to do is you're trying to capture something of that, of that connection between you and the person, between the person and you. And um, it doesn't always happen. Or sometimes you look at it and you think it's totally not happened, and then you look at it again later. This is what's interesting about editing, because I shoot film. Um, I shoot with an old Rolleiflex, and you look at the pictures when you first get them and you contact sheet when they come back and the editing process is so important and you think, well, it doesn't really work. Or you pick what's a really obvious picture, the picture of Chomsky here, is the picture that's kind of always, that's, that was a session of three rolls, which is 36 frames. And this is the picture that's always gone out. But just recently, about a year ago, I was looking at the sheets again and there are, there are at least one or two images that, and this is probably where I felt I was with him, the closest, place that I felt had some kind of sense of what he was about. But since then, in time, it's 20 years on, I kind of feel, you know, that I'm, I'm starting, so I, so I show another edit, there's a different picture, but it's, you know, you have to, you have to decide at some point what it is, you know, which one you're going to use, which one you're going to work with. Now, you're going to ask some questions, but I think maybe a lot of them I've, I've answered as regards, like, but I'll, I might keep a few reserved. There's one other thing that I just wanted to mention because this this thing about Socrates is, is interesting. What you know, what is a likeness? Because of course, a photograph can just be a likeness. And I've been really involved and interested in photo booths um, for the last like year and a half. And I've been photographing sessions of people in photo booths. So I've not been shooting with my camera at all. I've basically been directing people in photo booths. And. It's great. You just put the. You just keep putting the dollars well, in. It's 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 just a different. It's a different way. Of, it's a different way of photographing people, and uh, and it's all about how people relate to the camera. So people can relate to the ca you know, People can relate to the camera with the photo booth in, in the same way they can relate. Or it, actually, it can be quite light as well because there's something that we remember, like being you know when we were kids about our parents like shoving us in the photo booth and, or being taken you know having our portraits taken with the family. So there's something quite loose and familiar about photo booths as well, which and it's a lot of fun. So I've been I've been doing that just recently, but I just want to finish with this. Um, I'm not sure that trying to describe a true face gets us anywhere. There isn't such a thing. We present many faces. We present many faces to people every day. The most a portrait photographer can hope for is to make a portrait that reflects where the sitter is with the photographer 
and what knowledge they have shared and what the photographer has seen. So we should open the questions. So Alex and Steve, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. I was interested. Uh, yeah, thank you. We've got about 20 minutes, I think, for questions. I was interested, Steve, that, uh, that the person who started you off on all of this was, was Fred Yair, because when, yeah. when I was 17, I read Language, Truth, and Logic and was completely bowled over by it, and the fact that it seemed to answer all the questions, <coughs> partly by dismissing most of the questions that one felt needed to be, to be asked. And uh, when I got up to college, I sent him a letter, because at that age, you've got a lot of chutzpah, and I invited him for supper. <laughs> and uh, I got a wonderfully, some, I've got it somewhere, wonderfully uh, haughty response from, from, from uh, his wife, which said something like, and I paraphrase, um, thank you very much for the invitation. My husband doesn't come to Oxford very often, and when he does, he tends not to eat undergraduate food. <laughs> um, but I'm glad you've, I really w always wanted to meet him, I'm glad you got to meet him. Um, <laughs> so we've got about 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, Anybody got any questions for either Alex or Steve? Perhaps you could say who you are when you ask it. Yes, my name's Alan Gondley, but I'm a doctor, and I was, was very interested in what you had to say about Peter Singer. So what I'm saying may not be uh, so much a question as a comment, but it's interesting to see what you make of it. I mean, I find Peter Singer's ideas absolutely abhorrent, as you can imagine. And when you put up that little graph that is... Uh, how nice works. I don't know if they work on cases like that. They certainly do with drugs. But um, looking at the response there of nice and the response of um, that most of us gave, I don't know any doctor who would respond in the way nice would as an individual. And and to most of us, the way that nice would assess that is again is is absolutely abhorrent. So I think it says something about people sitting in, a, in an office somewhere and other people who actually deal with individual patients. It's interesting that, um, of course, NICE uh, is doing this, you're right, it's not for, it doesn't treat individual cases like this, right? A new drug gets produced that says it's for this condition, the imagine adds in this condition, or a typical person in another condition, there's a different drug. Will the drug be prescribed on the NHS? Yes or no? So they take this type of information into account, but it's not person by person, but rather treatment by treatment for the typical population. It is true that roughly they use the rule that I indicated, utilitarian rule. Now, what's interesting is that um, the documents and the principles on the basis of which they made this decision are made perfectly public. They've gone through two rounds of consultations with citizens' committees. Um, and there has not been widespread outcries that this is an abhorrent way of, uh, of doing it, even though utilitarianism, in, in, as we teach it also, is a kind of open to the standard objection that you make that this is absolutely the wrong way um, to make the decision. And in other countries where a similar utilitarian procedure was used, that is to treat in order to maximize total health gain, independently of how well or badly off the person is to whom the gain accrues. Uh, Oregon did something similar in the United States, and it was um, it was very widely criticized and withdrawn. So if it really is so important 
to many of us. I'm interested why perfectly public uh, and criticizable, publicly criticizable uh, set of principles has not been exposed to this type of criticism. Um, I mean, I guess it's interesting to know whether philosophers who have come up with these thought experiments would have different intuitions if they were dealing with patients on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis. I mean, I guess yeah. that's, that's partly your question. I know what Singer would say. I mean, he said, I, I put a case like this to him. He would say, your intuitive judgments are not reliable. You work according to certain patterns where you care for someone who's badly off. That's a good kind of first way to go about your day as a doctor. Um, but uh, when we take the objective moral point of view, we see that there's a greater gain for someone else and that we should therefore focus on doing the most good. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm governor of UCLA Hospital. Yeah. Um, just on a question of nice, um, if you have 17 people who, can, who have a very rare form of liver cancer mm. and you can spend £6 million treating them, you have to weigh that against 2.3 million people form of diabetes that you could make a massive change to their life. So it's about cost and it's also slightly political because you're appealing to the, the utilitarian ideal of what is going to have the most effect generally. So I don't think everyone always finds it abhorrent. It's just realistic. I mean it's very sad for the 17 individuals who possibly face their doomed future but you have to look at a much bigger picture and it's not always as straightforward as numbers even. I mean, I quite agree. I, I don't mean I didn't mean to start a debate about uh, uh, healthcare policy, but you're quite the the, the 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 point on this is a case of 17 versus 2.3 million, and where no. the 2.3 million have a very substantive ailment like as diabetes, which is not as bad as liver cancer, but still very substantive. It's quite different from the types of yeah, cases sure. that I put up where it's either one to one and there's a very marginal difference in the size of the brain, <coughs> or one versus 20 where the one will die and the others face something substantial like uh, chronic pain but not as bad as diabetes and the numbers one to 20 is very different from 17 to 2.3 million. I'm not saying, I made no pronouncements on what was right or wrong but also I'm not saying that numbers don't count at all in such matters. It's rather, should they count the way that someone like Peter Singer or Nice or Jerry Bentham or John Stuart Mill wanted them to count, which is we simply look at the total well-being in the population and not how it's distributed. And that latter idea is quite controversial, even if one would agree with you that 17 versus 2.3 million is a very different, that we should go for the, say, the greater number in this case. Please. I've got, I've got a question about the photographs. Um, your comment about Socrates was, was very interesting. So I was wondering, have you photographed any of the philosophers more than once as their philosophy has changed? And has their philosophy and as, as, that, as their philosophy has changed? As they have evolved, and um, their thinking has evolved. And I've just been asked to photograph um, Kripke. And I photographed him in 1990 because he's publishing a new book of writings. I'm only photographing him in the next couple of months, but I don't think um, I don't think I have no. No, I don't think I've gone back and photographed anybody a second time. No. Um, just a second. But 
I've done, but I have done that with other, you know, with other people. I've photographed, uh, photographed the subject and gone back two or three times for different reasons. Maybe once I was commissioned to do it, it was part of a series, and then I was commissioned to do it afterwards. So that's happened a number of times. And have have you had different responses? Yeah, when 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 you're older, and they're older, and. Um, Sometimes the reason, sometimes the reason that, that there's, I can think of one example is a re, I photographed somebody and it became a kind of iconic image of them, and um, and I was asked to go back and photograph her again, and then you become that comes like a, a like a, there's kind of like a relationship where someone's that maybe not always that comfortable about being photographed is comfortable with one person and the way that they work, or well, you just get on, you know, I mean, it's as simple. A lot of the time, it's as simple as that, and that's a lot of the time. What can make um, it's not important that you get on with the person because you're not actually. I mean, I don't think it's important that you show somebody in a bad light or in a good light. It's what what happens in that that chemistry that happens, and um, so it's happened. It's, so it has happened that I photograph people again, but not not philosophers, not yet. Question over here. Sorry, I was looking at this hand handout. The, uh, the 50 words. Mm. Now, you said earlier, I mean, you said something earlier that do, no, do numbers count. <coughs> Obviously, philosophers can't. Because <laughs> if that's 50 words, I mean, remember that. <laughs> they made a decision, they made a choice when given confronted with this um, yeah. task. Have you? Yeah, they did. They, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't. I mean, well, they cut. Did they, they pass? Did they foul? It goes back to the, the first um, presentation. I mean, do are these people above? Uh, I mean, right and wrong in some way. I mean, and in which case is is the philosophers which were you were asking about uh, the nice um, variation. Mm -hmm. uh, two types of questions there. One, I guess, about your uh, about those fi the, the 50 words. Yeah. And what you do to people who refuse to conform. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the 50 words, I mean, they, the, first of all, the 50 words are not about like passing or failing. You know, they're not about passing or failing. There. It's, it's to give some kind of statement that, 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 is, that kind of sums up a life in philosophy. And I think that's kind of, that's an interesting thing to be, to, it's a very interesting thing from the outside. And from the inside of philosophy to read, to see what it is that somebody feels. I mean, it's, fan it's fantastic mail for me as well, I've got to say. But the first time that it happened, there was no email, so it was always handwritten letters, and now everything arrives by email. But I think that they're, I think they're very interested in the, um, the 50. They're, they're, they're as important a part as the pictures are within the book. They're, the whole book, the whole reason that I'm that I'm photographing is to put is to get philosophy out there to more to out to more people and to increase the archive, um, you know, and not just to photograph any you know any, anyone that's rec that's recommended, but it has to be recommended three times. So it's like as I said, it's like a logical, you know, the people that I end up with, which is nearly two, the, the philosophers I end up with are nearly two two hundred now. Over the last sort of 20, 25, 30 years, would I would imagine if that logical, if that works, then they're they're the people that are, that have made the best philosophy. I don't know whether that's actually true, but to read, but to read the fifty words is is is, is kind of like a welcome addition. You don't want just a portrait. You know, you want some kind of connection with the person as well. Over there. Um, about the 
it seems there's kind of very bad dialogue too, um, which you kind of, I don't know whether you glossed over it or ignored it or whatever, which is sort of when it's used to ignore the sort of nagging skeptic in the room. Sort of, oh, we'll have, we'll have a dialogue. Well, okay, well, let's ignore the, the, the big issue of, you know, uh, of the sort of, you know, whether or not the, our fundamental presuppositions are correct. And it, I sort of, I read a book a while back called something like The Future of Theology, and it was basically a 200-page book saying, oh, we need to talk more. <laughs> and so I said, well, what about if it's all bollocks? Uh, or if you know, Dawkins is right or whatever, and, and it's all just bullshit. Um, all the dialogue in the world's not going to do you any good. So, talk shit. Um, how do you, how do you, you know, fit that into your scheme of, of yeah, good. So dialogue and bad dialogue? Anyone who's read Plato, including The Republic, after books <coughs> one and two, uh, you get a lot of examples of where dialogue doesn't realize its potential, right? It's all, yes, Socrates, no, Socrates, oh, please explain the following thing, Socrates. Oh, now I see it, Socrates. Um, so it's lost its power. I, I think it's powerful when and because it does the things that I've tried to outline. You know, I didn't think about this beforehand. You know, you do something. And then you think afterwards, and then you go to you know good examples. When it worked, why did it work? What is it that works? And I think that um, Plato is at his best when he asks, he gets someone to persistently ask the fundamental questions, whether that's Socrates questioning you or any guy in the street who claims to know something, or uh, someone else questioning Socrates or a debate among different people. And um, it works when the questions that you, as a skeptical reader, because we often are skeptical when we come to philosophy, and troubled, vexed by these questions, when the questions that vex you are articulated. So I think a book of, on theology where there's the, the skeptic continually gets his, his chance uh, is useful. Now, of course, to get anywhere, there has to be some shared not just rules of debate, but also the people have to be persuadable to some extent, right? If people are completely immovable in their position, then there's no progress in the dialogue, nothing can happen. Uh, all you get is an articulation of two completely opposing views. And um, so I, but I think, you know, we're by, we are by nature persuadable beings. If you're surrounded by others with a different opinion, you can't help almost move in their direction. I think that dynamic happens in the uh, dialogue as well. So to sum up, a bad dialogue is where the, the, the questions that you as a reader really want asked aren't asked, where the, the hard things are passed over, or where people are refusing to kind of be swayed at all by the other person. Um, and uh, you know that's something that Plato focuses on as well. Trasimachus gets sh shuffled off stage in The Republic because he's completely unwilling to really take seriously the thought that the view that he's attacking might actually be correct. Um, so some willingness to accept the other's point of view, to take it seriously, <coughs> is really important, as well as a good dose of skepticism. Question. There's no dilemma in having um, a very context-specific dialogue alongside a very context-specific photograph. How do you mean context-specific? Well, in terms of done at a certain time, asking certain questions, um, and in a, in a certain frame of mind, so philosophy 
their intelligence through their through the photographs. No, of course you can't. Re I mean, th th this would be interesting because you mentioned earlier, Alex, that I photographed this series of portraits. I went and photographed all the men that walked on the not all of them, some of them are dead now. Walked on the moon because I wanted to meet them because I knew I wasn't going to be able to go there. And when I was a kid, it was like a huge deal and still is. And, and I wanted to meet them and speak to them personally about it. But whether you could look at a portrait of of um, you know, of, of Aldrin, for instance, and put it next to a, um, you know, a portrait of Ned Block. And of course, he's wrong generation, but you know, that you can put them and you can say that this is a philosopher, and obviously this is a, this is a, this is an astronaut. No, you can't. But um, what's interesting about them is that they're collections of portraits of these people. Whether I think I think that I think I mentioned something earlier on that you kind of I believe that you end up with the face that you. Kind of like you end up with the face that you deserve. That, 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 you, that a lot of the way that you live your life, and the way that you are with people, and the way that you uh, interact with people, and the way uh, the way you are is, in some ways, is there in your face. I believe it is. I mean, I deal with photographing portraits of people, and I've done for the last thirty years, and that's 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 a conclusion that I've come to at this point. So why do you sometimes choose to? Do people in profile almost completely turning away? Then you see very little. But they're not turning away. They're not turning away at all. all right. I mean, I've just been, I've just been, I've just been watching you and your interaction here for the last half an hour, and I looked at you in profile the whole time. But I don't consider that you, you, you've turned away. It's not. I don't see it as being turned away. We've got time for a couple more, I think. Uh, yes. Yes. Chapman Yellow. Um, I think. Keen interest in portrait photography as of, as of recently, and the question I'd like to pose to Steve is: um, What what do you say to them within the one-hour session that you, you have with these, with these philosophers, and what do you say to them to elicit these responses that they get right, okay. in, in the camera? Right. <clears throat> um, well, specifically, then talking about these portraits, the philosophy portraits, because the first book has became. Uh, I'm just photographing this new generation, and the new generation were all, were, were all students when the first book came out. And most of them were students when the first book came out, and they all had the copy of this book, so they knew of the people, the weight of the people that were in it, the you know the Quines and the Rawls and, and Chomsky and people, and so they wanted to, and they see that it's a continuation of that book, and that in actual fact, two books are going to be published simultaneously. So they want to be in that. They want to be included in that. That's one thing that happens. They want to be included in that, in that group. Um, what happens when I photograph philosophers? A lot of the time, with I have an hour and I ask them, and I go through. F f to begin with, a lot of the people that I photographed uh, have known no other people, and they know that I photographed other people, and they'll ask about that, and they'll be, um, they give me their ten, and I've now kind of already photographed them all most most of the time. It's very rare for new names to come through because I've kind of reached this kind of like a plateau. Um, so um, how you actually get to a point where you where you, you bring something out of somebody when they when somebody sits in front of a camera, that's they can, you know people can be uh, wide open and um, and and you know when you're actually talking over a table over a cup of coffee or whatever and then sit in front of the camera they have they tend to have like a definite idea of how it is that they want to be portrayed because they know they know the portraits. The portraits have, got, have gone ahead. At the beginning, of course, they didn't. So um, they tend to. It's interesting question. 
because I've not looked at them all laid out, I've not looked at them as a book yet, and I'm actually in the process of editing them. But I think that these pictures, I mentioned something briefly about them, these pictures seem a lot softer, although they're photographed in the same space, but there's something about, and I don't mean softer out of focus, I mean there's something softer about what's going on between me and, and the sitter. But I need to see the whole, you know, I need to see the whole edit and the whole book. But these, they seem to me to be like that, and I've shown them to other people, and they, they think the same thing. The setting. Two more quick ones. The lady here, and then chap at the back. Um, I actually wanted to ask a question. Which ones Faces. I just came by and I saw the cover and all these faces. 
because otherwise there's yeah. a lot in your comments to, uh, to pick out. In the book, I tried to include both philosophers and scientists uh, interdisciplinarily working on questions of, the, so long as what they did was relevant to the three moral questions. For example, the first question I started with, can we trust our intuitions? A science that's relevant to that is psychology because it studies where our intuitive judgments <coughs> come from, what uh, things generate them, whether they're reliable. And that's why, for example, Daniel Kahneman, who's worked widely on intuitions, not just on moral intuitions, I thought was interesting to bring in to the debate. So I tried to link both philosophy and scientists in their work on the, on the three main questions. I think, I think we'll have... Let me just very quickly, because you had a... No, I think we'll have... Science. You see, that's a German term. That natural is not science, that's natural. It's a conscious knowing of nature, and it's Kantian, right? And to do that, you have to know about philosophy of others, like Indian and Chinese. But before that, you don't have Okay, thank you very much for that. So, I'd just like to thank our two guests. Steve, done fantastically well, just flown in from... New York. Alex, that was really fascinating. Alex has signed copies of his book, I think. And Steve as well. And Steve as well. So I just want to end. Um, Alex's book is full of these most wonderful quotes, and, and as I say, I urge you to buy it. One of my favourite quotes is from, from Philippa Foote, where she says um, to Alex, I'm not clever at all. This is one of the greatest philosophers of the, of the post-World War period. I'm not clever at all. I'm a dreadfully slow thinker, really. But I do have a good nose for what is important. And even though the best philosophers combine cleverness and depth, I prefer a good nose over cleverness any day. And I think both Steve, in the perspective ways, they have a great nose for what they do. And Steve has a great nose for, for taking uh, portraits. And Alex has got a great nose for what matters in dialogues he's been having with, its, uh, with these great philosophers. So I'd just like to end by saying thank you very much indeed. And, uh,